Let's now open the Word of God. Our scripture reading comes from John chapter 3. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony." If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So far, the reading of God's Word. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 14, stanzas 1 through 5. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of Christian doctrine. We find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day uh, 7. Lord's Day 7, we'll read this 
afternoon, the first two question and answers of this Lord's Day, 20 and, and 21. Beginning then in question and answer 20, the question is, are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? No, only those are saved who by true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all His benefits. What is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the preaching of the gospel. So far, our uh, reading of the Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, over the last weeks, uh, and indeed the last months, we've been opening our Bibles, studying our Bibles uh, during this afternoon service to see what God teaches us about the way of salvation. And we began by spending uh, at least uh, several weeks dealing with the reality of our sin. We saw how serious our sin is in the eyes of God, uh, how how easily we we downplay or minimize our sin, how often we we tend to overlook it. Uh, We also saw from God's perspective how God sees our sin, how God is committed in His perfect justice to dealing with our sin, to seeing it punished. Uh, and, And we saw that God is right to do this. And so as we've studied these things, we've begun asking ourselves the question, Uh, How can we escape from the judgment, the wrath that is due to us because of our sins? And we've been unpacking the biblical answer to that as we've looked at the work of of Jesus Christ. And I want to emphasize now at the beginning of this sermon, as we're about to shift topics, uh, that it's very good, not only that we've done this, but also that we continue to do this, uh, that we continue to open God's Word, to allow God to speak to us in His Word about these matters, and also to dwell on them and to think about them ourselves. Our salvation is something we are called as Christians to always be growing into, understanding more, coming also to appreciate more. Uh, Some of us might be tempted to think, well, I've been a Christian for for many, many years. Uh, I get these concepts. This is all, all very basic And yet we find, I certainly do, and I trust you do as well, every time we open God's Word with expectant hearts, ready to hear what God would would speak, uh, teachable minds, we begin to see things more clearly or more deeply than we've seen them before. We gain a deeper sense of also gratitude for the work that Christ has done for us. Uh, And... And we find these truths also not just hanging out in our minds, but sinking down into our hearts. And that's our, our goal, that what we believe about, about the gospel, about the work of Christ, would sink into our hearts to begin shaping and changing also the way we live our lives. Uh, so the reality is, one can spend a lifetime searching these truths out, pondering them as Scripture lays them out for us, and still be convinced 
uh, of things that, we, that, that they had not been convinced of before, or still be convicted of sin that they had not seen before, uh, still be corrected by God's Word. And I trust this has happened for some of you, being corrected by God's Word uh, as we've sought out false ways of, of salvation or begun to believe false things about why God would love us. Uh, and, and we can spend our lives doing this and also being encouraged and refreshed uh, by the good news, hearing that good news of Jesus Christ again and again. Uh, so that lays the foundation now for where uh, we're going from here. And I hope you can also appreciate how good it is that we do that on a regular basis. Uh, so we've been looking at these, these different ways of salvation. We spent the, In the last sermon, we spent some time discarding ways of salvation that, that are no good, uh, especially the belief that we can earn our own salvation before God. Um, And we've come to the conclusion that there is only one way of salvation, and that is to believe in the Savior whom whom God has sent, uh, Jesus Christ, that God has come into our broken, fallen, sinful, idolatrous world to live the life we ought to have lived, to die the death we deserve to die, and to rise to new life, to give that new life to us. The question that now stands before us is, if this is true, if that gospel message is true, does that now mean that everyone is saved? If God sent His world, as we also read in John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, if God has done this, does that mean that the whole world is therefore saved? And that's a very serious question. Uh, There are uh, many people who believe that everyone will be saved. And and there are different reasons for believing it. Some of them have to do with uh, these lies that we've already discarded. For example, uh, this idea that that our sins are really not serious enough for God to send anyone to hell. And we've looked at that and we've said, no, we may want that to be true but that's not what God's Word teaches us to be true. So we've, we've discarded that if we've been listening to, to God's Word. No, God will punish our sins. But there are also some who, who do accept that, that God will punish sins, that our sins are serious enough to be deserving of hell, uh, and yet still believe that because Christ has died for us, all people are therefore saved. Now, I'll admit, I wish that to be true, as much as I'm sure any of you would wish that to be true. Uh, Even God is said on some level to desire that all people would be saved. Uh, Scripture teaches this, that that God desires that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. But for us to stand, as some do, as, as many pastors do and churches do, to stand and declare that that this will happen, that all people will be saved is not listening to the Word of God. And that's been our goal all along, hasn't it? To listen to the Word of God and to say what He speaks is what will be true also in my mind and my heart. Uh, So our goal is not to to come up with a theology we like. It's not to come up with an idea of God that we want. It is rather to listen to the true God and to take Him at His Word. Uh, so, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8, is, is very clear that not all will be saved. Uh, Paul writes, Those who do not know God 
And those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Scripture is quite clear, and that is, of course, one of of many such verses. Uh, There will be some, uh, by implication then, there will be some who do not obey the gospel. We'll talk in a moment about what that that phrase means. Uh, And they will not be saved. So, let God speak, and let all of our wishful thinking perish. We must stand at the end of the day before the word and throne of God. Don't wait until that day to begin confessing God's truth after He speaks it. Let God be true in every man, a liar, as the Apostle Paul also says. Uh, So the question then before us is, if not everyone is saved, how then shall we be saved? How can one, if we know that salvation is in Christ alone, because God has sent Him to be the Savior of the world, how can you be counted together with Christ? And how can you know that you are counted together with Christ. Uh, I want to go back to then to that, that phrase that Paul uses in that verse I just cited. Uh, those who do not obey the gospel. What does that mean? That's, it's, Paul says, those who do not obey the gospel will be cast into eternal punishment. What does it mean to obey the gospel? It's a strange expression if you think about it, isn't it? Because the gospel is good news. You don't obey good news. Uh, it's not a command, it's, it's news. Uh, and yet the implication here is that this good news comes with a calling and a command. So what is that command? What does the gospel call us to do? I want to think with you about that question. Uh, that question is, is almost always answered in one of three ways in the New Testament. If you do a bit of a study of what's the call of the gospel or the command of the gospel, you will almost always find one of three words or perhaps a combination of, of these three commands. Uh, perhaps you can, you're already in your minds uh, guessing what, what might these three commands be, the call of, of the gospel. Well, almost always, it is one of these three words. Number one, repent. Number two, believe. And number three, be baptized. You'll find these three almost always where there is a call of the gospel. So Acts 2, verse 38, what must one do to be saved? It says, those who heard Peter were cut to the heart. They cried out, brothers, what must we do to be saved? And Peter answered, repent and be baptized. Uh, Acts 3, verse 19, Repent and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Uh, uh, Chapter 8, verse 12, When when the crowds heard Philip, or excuse me, when the people heard Philip, they were baptized. Uh, Acts 17, verse 30, this is Paul speaking in Athens. Uh, He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people, there's the command of the gospel, to repent. Or Acts 20, verse 21, uh, Paul says, We testify both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith. Uh, In the Greek, that's the same word as belief. Uh, Faith, belief, it's one one word in the Greek. So, repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, One more, Acts 22, verse 16, And now why do you wait, uh, Paul says, Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Uh, and, and we might find many more. You think of the words of the Lord Jesus as well, where he says, 
bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Or Romans 3, as Paul writes to the Romans, uh, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Again, that's the same word as believing. Uh, so you notice one thing, there's no single formula. Uh, as, as we... Uh, we often want to reduce the gospel command to a single formula that you can memorize and just repeat for everyone. And yet the gospel command, though it's consistent, there's typically these same three words, uh, there's no one formula. Uh, Repentance is one of the words. It refers to a change of mind and a change of heart. It's also related to the idea of, of turning around. So you're going one direction, you turn around, and go the other direction. Uh, Believing, of course, uh, refers to accepting the truth of the Word of God, accepting it intellectually, living by it, uh, also spiritually, living by it and uh, taking it to heart and and living it out. And finally, being baptized uh, is, is the third of those words. And that's, of course, we remember in the context of adult baptism, in the context of the spreading of the early church, you find this command to repent, believe, and be baptized. And then baptism was the visible expression of that repentance and faith. So who is it then? We'll ask the question again. Who is it that is saved? Who is it that is counted together with Christ? It is those who, number one, believe the Word of God and the good news of Jesus to be true. Uh, It is also those then who, because they so believe, uh, they also recognize themselves to be the sinners that God calls them to be. This is part of our our faith, our belief. Uh, And they recognize the peril of of failing to repent, the eternal judgment of God that stands against them. And they also recognize and believe the promises of God, that forgiveness is given to them in Jesus Christ. Uh, So it is those who believe And having believed, it is also they they who then turn and repent, who were going one way, who turn around and go another way. Those who claim to believe but continue in the same way do not truly believe. And then finally, it is those who, if they have believed, if they have repented, and if they have not yet been baptized, who express that belief and that repentance by coming forward to be baptized. If you want a New Testament definition of Who are those who are saved? Uh, That's a pretty good summary. Uh, And this is what the Catechism also then refers to when it speaks of being grafted into Christ by true faith. Uh, If you're not familiar with the concept of grafting, uh, perhaps there are some botanists in our midst who can uh, explain it better, but it it is the process whereby a branch or a twig is is joined to another tree or another, uh, another plant and bound together so that it ends up taking its, its life, its, its energy, from that, that new plant. So it's been removed from one plant and made part of another. Uh, this is a biblical, a biblical metaphor, this idea of being grafted into Christ. We're taken from the world, we're brought into and made part of the kingdom of Christ. Uh, and, and this is then the command of the gospel. Repent, believe, be baptized, and so be grafted into Christ. Now, some of us uh, perhaps might, might be uncomfortable with this whole idea of a command 
of the gospel. Uh, we, we can consider this from the perspective of God's sovereignty and say, is this even an appropriate question? Uh, what must you do to be saved? It's not me who, I don't save me, it's God who saves me. Uh, so we can pr- consider that from the perspective also of God's sovereignty and recognize at the end of the day, if I do what God commands me to do, if I heed the call of the gospel and, and ask this question, what must I do to be saved and then do it, I recognize at the end of the day, it is not me who does it, but Christ in me. It is God's sovereignty choosing me, instilling faith within me, and working it out in me. And so we also see this in the profession of faith. As as these two young people come forward to profess their faith, uh, we recognize it is not at the end of the day they who have instilled faith in themselves. It is not they who have taken the initiative to heed the call of the gospel. But it is God who called them, who chose them, who instilled faith in them, and now who brings them forward. So that's the call of of the gospel. Uh, We also read from John chapter 3, and we did so because there it shows also the the significance of faith. So I asked the, the dual question in the title of this sermon, what is faith and why does it matter? We've explored the question, what is faith? It is believing in all that God teaches in His Word and especially the good news of Christ. Now, why does it matter? Why is faith so important? And you see that, uh, you see a picture of that in in John chapter 3. Let me preface this by saying, it's often believed in our culture that, that faith or believing as a Christian is primarily an intellectual question. That belief is a matter of the mind and only a matter of, of the mind. Uh, so there are many uh, atheists and agnostics in our culture who might say something like, you know, I wish I could believe, uh, but I, I can't. Uh, the assumption being that belief is, is not a moral question. It's an amoral uh, question, a morally neutral question, and a question of mere intellectual persuasion. Uh, as in, if I had the evidence, I would believe, but I don't have the evidence, so I can't believe. It's reduced then to an intellectual matter. I want to emphasize, and, and I want to show this from John chapter 3, that that is simply not true. It is not primarily an intellectual question, but a moral question. Uh, the choice whether or not to believe in, in God in the first place, and in the gospel of Jesus as well, is far more dependent on moral questions than it is on intellectual ones. Now, I'm not saying that uh, intellectual questions are not brought to bear upon our our convictions. Uh, Obviously, they are. The evidence does matter, and the evidence is there. Uh, Christianity is not an irrational faith. Uh, It is rational uh, I commend to you, if you're interested in reading more, Tim Keller's The, the Reason for God, uh, or, or the numerous works of John Lennox, exploring the, the rational basis for the Christian faith, which is there. And yet faith is not primarily a matter of intellect or reason. Uh, an inability to believe in God and, and in Christ is not a matter of the intellect, but a matter of the will. And that's the point the Lord Jesus makes in John 3. So John 3 records a a private conversation between Jesus and and Nicodemus, uh, who was a Pharisee who eventually became a believer. 
And I want to focus on especially verses 16 through 21. You might be helped by uh, having your own Bibles open as well to see these things. Uh, John 3 verse 16 is probably the most famous Bible text in, in the whole of Scripture. Uh, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him might not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, and, and there it is again. You, you see the answer to the question, who is saved? Those who, who believe. So you see it there as well. And it's, it's there again in the next verse, verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. How? Verse 18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Uh, so God condemns or saves on the basis of Jesus Christ and on the, by, by the measure of our faith. Where there is faith, there is unity with Christ. Where there is not faith, there is only condemnation. So think through this with me. Why? Why does God make belief a, uh, the, the criterion by which He saves or condemns? Is, is God... Uh, doing this to to arbitrarily exclude those who, for intellectual reasons, happen to be critical thinkers and are not as gullible as the rest of those religious people. Is that God's intent to condemn those who have uh, intellectual minds, who, who find themselves unable to believe in spite of how badly they might want to believe? Uh, no, that, that is not what God is doing. And that's the the argument that the Lord Jesus then draws out. In verse 19, He says, This is the judgment. The light, that is the light of God's truth, has come into the world, and the people, what? Loved the darkness rather than the light because they, they were not intellectual enough. No. Because their works were evil. What drives belief and unbelief? According to God's Word, it is not a shortage of evidence. It is not a matter primarily of intellect. It's it's a moral question and primarily a question of love. Who or what do you love? Now, why do some people believe and why do some people not believe? It has nothing to do, not primarily, with intellect. And it has everything to do with the love. The love of their hearts. And if you want plain evidence of this, and there, there is plenty evidence for that, uh, the fact that, that belief is not intellectually driven, consider the fact that there is no statistical difference in IQ or any other, uh, by any other measure between believers and unbelievers. Uh, you, you'll find believers and unbelievers on both ends of the intellectual spectrum. Unbelief has nothing to do with intellect, has everything to do with Love with the affections of the heart. Uh, that's the word of the Lord Jesus. That's the point he makes. It's not a result of, uh, of, of failing to believe in spite of wanting to. It is a result of loving ourselves, loving our pride, loving our sin, loving uh, our autonomy from God, and not wanting to submit ourselves to him. That's what Jesus teaches us here. And... 
as a pastor, I can speak from a pastor's perspective. Uh, I've seen it many times, and the elders certainly have as well, uh, not just in unbelievers, but even in self-professed Christians, uh, how, how so much of belief is driven by what we love. If we don't want to see our sin, for example, we won't see it. If we refuse to, to, to recognize it, we can be utterly blind. And sin, in every case, is a case of blindness to one's own uh, sinfulness. Blindness and, and refusal to see one's own sin. It's not because the evidence isn't there. Sometimes it's abundantly there in one's own life. And yet there is a refusal to see it. It's, it's a question of desire, of affection, of love, not a question of intellect. Now, well, how much more then for those who reject the gospel of Christ altogether? It's not an intellectual problem. Men and women of, of far greater intellect than anybody in this room uh, have recognized the truth of the word of God. It's a moral problem. Will you hear the Word of God, as He calls out your sin, as He proclaims His just judgments, and as He calls you to repentance? Or will you harden your hearts, stuff your fingers in your ears, and insist that you find the arguments unpersuasive? That's what drives belief and unbelief. Uh, they are not indifferent than indifferent responses to the Word of God. Un, uh, they're, they're very much emotionally packed Unbelief, as, as Jesus unpacks it here, uh, unbelief is the expression of the fallen human heart enraptured with its autonomy, hostile to God, and loving the darkness. You, you see the Lord Jesus says that. Loving the darkness rather than the light because our works are evil. And the Lord Jesus says it again in verse 20. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Why do people not believe? Because believing necessitates repentance, and repentance exposes sin. It brings us under the authority of God's word, where we do not want to go. It's the fact then that the gospel of Christ asserts, and this is why it is hated so much, it asserts the authority of God over our lives. It exposes and condemns our pride by which we would stand on our own opposed to God. And it is then, if that's true, it is entirely the grace of God that breaks through that kind of loving the darkness and hating the light. Uh, you don't do that by your own willpower because if it was up to your willpower, you would pursue with even greater will that which you love, which is the darkness. It's the grace of God that breaks through darkness into light. Uh, verse 21, Whoever does what is true comes to the light that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see God working in the lives of those who come to the truth. It's interesting uh, that Jesus uses the phrase, I don't know if you, uh, if you noticed it, maybe your eyes glossed over, uh, but uh, Jesus does not say, in verse 21, uh, he does not say, he who does what is right comes to the light, but rather he who does what is true comes to the light. It's another strange expression, kind of like obeying the gospel, where you say, how do you do what is true? Uh, you can't, uh, what is true is not something you do or don't do. Uh, but what, what Jesus means is uh, acting and living in accordance with the truth, in light of, of the truth. 
so he's not here talking about he who, he who has a perfect track record, he who is more righteous than all others, but he who lives in the light of the truth of God, whose, whose life is shaped and affected by standing in the light of God's truth. Uh, so it's not necessarily being uh, perfect. It's not necessarily being more righteous than those around you, but rather living before God, including things like confessing your sin where the light of God's truth exposes your sin. It, it refers to uh, not necessarily morally superior people, but rather it is those who live with an orientation to the truth of God's word, and that is by God's grace, as Jesus says, uh, that it may be seen that his works are carried out in God. It is only by the grace of God that any of us may stand in the light of God's truth and actually live out of it and not hate it like we do by nature. Uh, and remember, of course, Jesus is talking here to, to a Jew, where the context is the majority of the Jews were doing exactly what Jesus said, loving the darkness rather than the light of God. And Jesus is saying for those Jews who choose not to believe in him, the reason they did not is because they are at war with the truth itself. He's not giving them that credit that maybe they're just reading their Bibles differently and coming to different conclusions. He's saying, no, Scripture speaks of me clearly. And if they reject me, it is not because they read their Bible different, except uh, in that they, they are at war, and they read their Bibles at war with the truth itself. They prefer lies, the lie of self-righteousness, the lie of believing themselves to be superior, uh, instead of the truth of God. So we come back to the question that we started with. What must a person do to be saved? If not everyone will be saved, what must we do to be counted together with Christ and covered in His blood? The call of the gospel coming now from John 3 is very clear. Uh, Step out of the darkness. Come into the light of God's truth. Let your works, your sin, your pride, your self-righteousness be exposed, also your self-deception, your, your belief in superior intellect. Let it be exposed by the light of God's Word and hold nothing back from the God who sees and knows your life. Confess your sins, repent of them, turn uh, from them to the God who calls you to Himself. Uh, Pray for His mercy, as Jesus also promises us in Matthew 12. A bruised reed He will not break, a smoldering wick He will not quench. Or as He says in John 6, verse 37, All whom the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. What a gracious promise and a sincere promise that is from Jesus So, brothers and sisters, hear the the call of the gospel, the command of the gospel, loud and clear. It isn't only a call to unbelievers. It's a call to every believer as well in every day of every believer's life. Uh, It's the call that shapes your life. You don't just obey the gospel once and then you're a believer. You obey the gospel and live the rest of your life in obedience to the gospel. Uh, This is one of the big... uh, Uh, points made in the Reformation as well. Uh, When Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door, you know what thesis number one was? It wasn't about the papacy. 
It wasn't about justification by faith. It wasn't about sola scriptura, at least not primarily. Thesis number one was that contrary to the system of penance used in the Catholic Church, it is rather the entire life of a Christian that is to be a life of repentance. That's the call of the gospel, that your life would be a life of repentance. Uh, So turn to God, confess your sins, and believe in Christ with the repentance that God gives you. Uh, So we recognize, too, then, it is by the grace of God that these two young people come forward to profess their faith. It's not within them. Within them, in their own nature, they would love the darkness more than the light, just as every one of us would as well. It is the grace of God showing them the light and giving them a heart to love the light. Uh, And besides these these three, I mentioned three gospel commands, uh, repent, believe, be baptized. The next most common is to confess, to confess the lordship of Christ. You see this, for example, in Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Uh, that's, That's the other aspect of the call of the gospel. Not just to believe, hiding your belief here in your heart, but to come forward and confess, profess your faith in Christ. Uh, Confessing the lordship of Jesus then is the visible expression of the invisible belief that God has placed in our hearts. And that's what we have the privilege of witnessing also this afternoon as two young people come forward to stand on the ground that God has placed uh, under them and confess with their mouths the belief that God has placed in their hearts. And to all then who, who do this, who confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and who believe what God teaches in His Word, God assures them, assures all of us, that the gospel promises are ours. You do not need to doubt it. You do not need to wonder whether He means it for you. Confess with your mouth, believe with your heart, and the promises are yours. So Nathan and Chantel, uh, consider the work that God has done in you, uh, giving you the faith that you have and the desire to profess that faith by which you are saved and sealed in His kingdom. Amen. Let's respond by singing from Psalm 118, stanzas 5 through 8.